Welcome to the Centerpoint Church podcast. At Centerpoint Church, we are a community of believers impacted by God's saving grace and the love He demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Our response to this amazing grace is to allow it to transform our lives and to share it with others. As a body of believers, we find our purpose in knowing Christ, growing together, and reaching beyond ourselves to help others do the same. Uh, welcome back to our, our series on why. Um, it's called Why, and we're actually, we're studying the book of Job, and, and as we wade into the suffering that we see in the world, and as we wade into the suffering that we experience in our own hearts, in our own lives, I just want to thank you, truly, I, I, I thank you for engaging in this hard and painful work. I, I realize it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for, for me and for our team, too. I, our hope in this, in this series has been to create some space as a church um, to give permission, to process our grief and suffering, and to, to bring our grief and suffering to God. Our hope is that together, at Jesus' feet, we might find healing, we might find hope. And as our whole, as our whole team has been, has been thought, has trying to be as thoughtful and gentle as possible, but I, I know I don't know all your stories, but when I look in your faces, I see it. And I know parts of your story, and it, I know enough. I, I just, my heart goes out to you. I've been praying, and I continue to pray that the Spirit would be at work as a healing balm in your life, um, that God is already at work doing that. Maybe this is your first time connecting with us in this series. We're praying. We're continually praying that the Spirit would be at work in your life, bringing healing to your heart as we process our grief and bring it before God. Um, our hope is, is to meet you where you are, and, and if you're in need of pastoral care, please reach out to us. Our, our desire is to serve you. So if you want to talk to someone on staff, you want to talk to a pastor, there's, there's opportunity to connect. If you check out the worship guide, um, right there, there's contact information. We'd love to connect with you and walk with you wherever you are. And uh, our hope in all of that is, is to bring you to um, the feet of Jesus, to bring you to God, and to, to remind you that Jesus is with you, that, that, that you can honestly bring your pain and your suffering and your hurt to God, and, and you can trust, because sometimes it's hard to know this, but you can trust that God cares, and even more than that, that God knows what he's doing, even when we don't understand it. God knows what he's doing, and God is, is good. So this is our heart in this series, and this is our heart for you, so please keep this in mind, or be mindful of our heart as we enter into an, another installment in the book of Job, um, this one coming from Job chapter 2. Before we go to God's word, let's ask the Holy Spirit, to open our hearts to it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may your word be our rule. Your spirit, our comforter and teacher, and the glory of Jesus, may the glory of Jesus be our single concern. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, we're in Job chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 11, 11 to 13. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, if you brought that with you or your preferred electronic device, please open that up to Job chapter 2. And then you'll notice, um, if you're looking at the worship guide, there's 33 chapters to follow. We're not going to read them all. You're welcome. But 33 more chapters that you might want to take a little time this afternoon and, and work through yourself. Um, but Job chapter 2, starting in verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out. 
from their homes and met together by agreement to go and, and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Job's three friends. That got me thinking, do I have three friends? Have I been vulnerable enough? Have have I invested in the depth of relationship to have this kind of, of covenant connection that Job has with these three friends? There's intentionality here. There, there's relationship there. It's deep relationship and vulnerability. And this relationship and this vulnerability preceded, it preexisted this tragedy in Joe's life. The work was done before the tragedy occurred. And that got me thinking, am I this kind of friend? To three people, to any people, am I this kind of person? Am I investing vulnerably and deeply in others? Do I, have, do I have these kind of covenant relationships where I would show up? Where I would show up and enter into someone's deepest pain and sit in it with them? Am I this kind of friend? Do I have these kind of relationships? Do you? Are you investing in this level of relationship? Does this look like what your friendships look like? Do you think we should? Do you think we should invest like this? Before we dig into all the stuff that's coming next, all the details and all the mess that follows, I want to share a deep conviction with you that, that goes against the current of culture. We have a pretty individualistic culture. I'm a pretty individualistic, independent person. Maybe you are too. But here's my deep conviction. We need each other. We do. We need each other. God has called us into a covenant relationship with each other, and that means something. So before we go any further, make a mental note, or if you write notes, or if you type notes, make a little note. Am I the kind of friend that I would hope to have Am I the kind of friend that I would hope to have? So these three friends, they hear about Job's tragedy, and they think they understand what, what's happened, but they, they don't go and gossip about it, and they don't go on Twitter and tweet about it, and they're not online. And social, they're doing none of this stuff. It's none of that. There's no gossip here. They, they get into action. They set out. The Scripture says they meet together, and they travel to Job in order to console and comfort their friend Job. Motivated by the love and commitment that they have for each other, this covenant relationship that pre-exists this tragedy. They, they heard that it was bad. They thought they, they knew what they were getting into, but when they showed up, they, they had no idea. It was beyond their imagination. What, what was once Job's sprawling estate that I'm sure they'd visited many times. They, they've hung out with Job before. There's relationship, right? What was once Job's sprawling estate is now a hellscape curated by the Satan. Rotting animals, 
flattened buildings, fresh graves. And at the center of it all, barely clinging to life, was a hardly recognizable, disfigured human being that is what was left of their friend Job. They saw him. They wept. They tore their robes. In the, in the depth of sorrow, they threw dust in the air and they earnestly desired to help bear this burden of sorrow with Job. They shared in his grief. They desired to ease his pain. They fell to the ground in mourning right alongside him and they were speechless for seven days and for seven nights. And finally, finally Job speaks. And we talked about that last week, this, this lament from Job. Job belts out this this pain-fueled lament directed toward heaven and asks God why. And the question, why? The question hangs thick in the air, unanswered and suffocating. And then, in, in their anxiety, the friends speak. They have exhausted their capacity to endure emotional pain and instead of letting the question why hang in the air uncomfortably, they try to answer for God. And what could go wrong with that, right? They try to speak for God and oh man, it gets pretty ugly. That's those 33 chapters from 4 to 37 that we're talking about today. This triggers three cycles of conversation between Job and his friends where each friend speaks. He gives like this big speech. And in in turn, Job responds to each one of them. And it goes on and on and on. And uh, this drags on for 33 chapters. And I'll spare you from going through each verse by verse, each chapter verse by verse. Uh, That's probably its own level of suffering. But I would encourage you, I'd encourage you to crack open your Bible and and take a sample of what this is like and and what happens when we try to speak for God, when we don't understand. What happens when we try to answer why for God? I'll attempt to do my very best to summarize what it is that's happening in these 33 chapters and summarize these conversations that Job is having um, with his friends and what his friends are trying to express. And here's something I've noticed. I've noticed this in in my life. I've noticed it in my pastoral life. I've noticed it in my friendships. Um, When we suffer... What we believe is exposed. In suffering, what we, what we really believe rises right to the surface. In times of anxiety and suffering, our, our, what we truly believe is exposed. Our embedded theology, so this, this theology that's deep in our bones but maybe not fresh in our minds, this embedded theology bubbles up to the surface. I think in this story that's true for Job. We get to see what Job really believes, where he's at, and it's true for Job's friends. We see where Job's friends are really at and what it is that motivates their life and and then also animates this conversation that they're having between Job and these three friends. They think they're trying to help. And this is what Job's friends believe. In a nutshell, they believe in the doctrine of retribution. Now that, that sounds confusing and fancy, but it's not. It's simply this. They believe that God is just, which we can agree with, and they and that God has ordered the world according to that justice which means that 
in its, its most simplistic form, good people get good things. They are blessed, whatever that means. Good people get good things, and bad people get bad things. Bad people are punished, and there are no exceptions. Good people always get good things, and bad people always are punished. This is their worldview. This is how they understand and they believe. This is what they believe, how the world works. So they're going in with this mindset. This is the, the core theology of Job's friends. So they all attempt to, to console Job and restore Job. And this is how. They attempt to restore Job and console Job, comfort Job, by accusing Job of sin. Oh, thanks. Um, because their only explanation, the only explanation that their theology and their worldview will allow is that Job must have sinned because that's the only way this doctrine of retribution works itself out. But you need to remember something. And I know that for some of you, this might be your first time hanging out with us. Go back and read at least Job chapter 1 or, or tune in at wearecenterpoint.com and watch some of these sermon series sermons. Um, you need to remember something and we need to go back and remember that that we know things that Job doesn't know, right? And we also know things that Job's friends do not know. In chapter 1, it was God who said, it was God who said, Job is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. God said this about Job. Job maintains his innocence and his friends insist upon his sin. So let me summarize the three positions that these friends take as they try to comfort their friend Job. First, uh, Eliphaz. Eliphaz tries, um, he tries to, to take a, a gentler tact. So this is the heart of it. I think he's coming soft. And you'd imagine entering into this space and sitting with Job in the dust and the ashes. You're trying to come with a gentle voice. You're, essentially, he's, he's saying that, that no human being, Job, no Job, no human being is righteous before God. Don't feel bad. Okay, buddy? No one is. We know that. Job, you know that. No human being is righteous before God. Don't feel bad about that. Just repent, Job. Don't be stubborn. Just repent. Admit your mistake because we know that no one is righteous before God. So admit that you sinned against God and God will restore you, Job. God will restore you. If you just repent, God will give you good things again, Job. Does this sound familiar to you? Do you remember the accuser's accusation in the throne room of God? Do you remember what the accuser said? Um, it went like this. The only reason that Job loves God at all is because God has blessed him with so many good things. If God takes away these blessings, Job will curse God to his face. This is the accusation of the accuser. Satan says that Job loves God for, for God's things. Job does not love God for God himself. So without realizing it, Eliphaz is tempting Job to fall into the very trap that Satan has set for him. Zophar, this is the third friend, Zophar tells, tells his friends that um, so, well, he takes a similar approach to Eliphaz. He, he, I think he's trying to be gentle, but it gets worse. And then each cycle, it gets exceedingly worse. Uh, uh, the gloves kind of come off, and they get more and more aggressive. So he takes a similar approach to Eliphaz with similar results. 
Zophar tries to impress Job with the awesomeness of God's wisdom, right? And I, yeah, God's wisdom is awesome. The awesomeness of God's wisdom. The creator of the universe, whom Job is crying out to, knows everything about Job and knows everything about everything because God created all that is, including Job. He knows everything. So, Job, there, there must be something that you've done. Job, there must be something that you've done. And God knows about it. Job, there's a hidden sin, isn't there? There's something in there that you're just not telling me. Maybe you don't even, maybe, let's give you the very benefit of the doubt. Maybe you're not even aware of your sin. Maybe, maybe it's not a front of mind for you. But, but Job, God knows everything. There must be something that you have done and you've sinned against God. There's this hidden sin. And Zophar tells his friend, Job, that because of God's wisdom, and because there's must, something hidden in you, you deserve this, Job. You deserve this. And he goes further. He said, Job, you should be thankful. You should be thankful that God is showing mercy to you and not punishing you even more than he already is. What a friend. Like Aliphaz, Zophar unwittingly aligns himself with Satan. He, he's encouraging Job ultimately to seek God for personal gain. Seek God for good things. Bildad, the other friend, is even harsher than, the, than these two. Bildad, straightforward, simple argument. God is just and all God's ways are just. And God never perverts his justice. So Job is getting exactly what he deserves. Bildad refuses to allow any experience, including the one right in front of him, allow any experience to inform his understanding. He is a slave to tradition. He is so, his belief is so deep in this theology of retribution that he is unwilling to take any other information to inform the way the world works or the way in which we treat each other in the world. There's nothing he's willing to even consider. The doctrine of retribution has no exceptions. Good people are blessed. Bad people are punished without exception. This is what Bildad thinks. Therefore, Job must have sinned and Job deserves the punishment he's getting. All three friends turn out to be witnesses for the prosecution. They stand with the accuser. All through this argument that goes on, Job maintains his innocence. And we know from chapter 1 that Job is innocent. Job did nothing to merit what happened here. It, it is not a result of his sin. Job is certain that this punishment is unjust. And Job is tortured. He's tortured by the fact that he has no idea. He has no idea why he's being punished. Why is this happening? He cries out to God, what is my crime? What is it that I have done, Lord? What is it that I've done to deserve this? It reminds me, reminds me of a movie I saw, um, The Count of Monte Cristo. Have any of you seen The Count of Monte Cristo? Or read the book? Sioux Center? Count of Monte Cristo, Anybody? I think it's a good movie, but I might have the best taste. So up to you. Read the book, maybe. Um, there's this young man named Edmund. Edmund Duntess. He's engaged to be married. 
has this bright future. Everything is going great, and he's just starting out in life. And then he's arrested without charge. Like, they break into his house. They arrest him in front of his dad. It's ugly. And he's like, like Dad, don't worry. This is a mistake because there's, there's nothing that he's done. This will be worked out in just a few minutes. I'll be right back. Don't, don't finish supper without me. This is where he is in his mind space. He's arrested. He's taken. And he's thrown into an island prison called the Chateau d'If. Now, Edmund doesn't know. This is a place where people go that they want to disappear. Usually some kind of political prisoner or something. They just go away. So he's taken to this prison, this, this prison, the Chateau d'If. And he's, he's held in a stone cell in isolation. And he cries out, what is my crime? What is my crime? Why am I here? What have I done? And every year, on the anniversary of his imprisonment, his, his jailers enter the jail cell and beat him. They whip him to within an inch of his life to just further his pain and suffering. And as he's being beaten, he cries out, What is my crime? What have I done to deserve this? And they beat him to within an inch of his life and he falls to the ground. And they leave and they lock up and he he picks himself up off the stone floor and he takes a, a stone and he carves into the wall. God will give me justice. Every time, every year, year after year, he falls to the ground after they beat him to within an inch of his life. And he, he rises and he carves into the stone wall, God will give me justice. They never tell him what his crime is. The pain and psychological torture is overwhelming. What have I done? What is my crime? Why, Lord? Why am I here year after year after year? And soon, God will give me justice as carved deep into the stone wall. But it's no longer written on Edmund's heart. Bitterness takes root. Thoughts of vengeance and revenge consume his mind. And for a season, Edmund gives up on God. And God's justice. But Job never does. Job's closest friends tell him that this is God's justice. This is God's justice. And Job cries out to God, What is my crime? What have I done to deserve this? God, give me justice. Remarkably, Job perseveres. We don't know for how long Job has to persevere. Job exhibits extraordinary grit. He maintains his integrity when no one else believes him. At the end, he's standing alone. No one believes him. No one believes his story. And he continues through all of this to seek God. He continues to cry out. He continues to go to God. This is what Job does so well. And in his cries to God, Job contemplates... This is where he's at. He contemplates the life that is offered to a tree stump. So after a tree's been cut off, right? It's just the stump on the ground. He's envying. He's imagining how good a tree stump has it. Because with just a few drops of water, you've probably seen this. A tree stump can shoot new shoots. And and if you're thinking biblically, you're going to start to see 
where, where Job's starting to look. A, a new shoot that comes up from an old stump. This is, he's, he's like, oh, if only I was like a tree stump, I could have new life. I, I'm understanding that I need, I need new life. But there's no restoration for him. When a person dies, this is how Job understands the world. When he dies, there's no hope of resurrection. When you're dead, you're dead. There's, there's nothing for him. And Job realizes that he needs to be brought from death to life. How can, how can this happen? How can he be brought from, from death to life? Because he has no hope of resurrection. It's clear that his friends cannot save him. They're not even going to help him. They're actually against him. His only hope his only hope is God. If he could only enter that throne room that's become a courtroom and present his case to God, if he could only present his case to God, if he could actually face his accuser and know what his crime is, what is it that I've done? Present the evidence against me. He could at least make a case. He could make a case to demonstrate his innocence before God. Job knows that only God can give him justice. And as Job imagines this this courtroom opportunity, it occurs to him, he can't go up against God. God's going to mop the floor with him. If he tries to argue with God, how can, God is God. Job understands the holiness and the greatness and the wisdom and the justice, all the things have not lost on him. God is God. How can he present his case to God? How could he stand up in that courtroom and actually achieve anything? Job needs an advocate. Job needs an intercessor. Job needs a a better friend. Job needs someone who will stand for him. Job's not suing. He's not pursuing a restoration of his wealth that is lost. He's not even pursuing a restoration of his family. This is not what he's asking for. Job is pursuing it his most fundamental need. Job is pursuing restoration with God. God, where are you? Remember, throughout the book of Job, we know things that Job doesn't know. And here's what I see. From the oldest, one of the oldest books in the Bible, this book of Job, it's one of the oldest books of the Bible. We know that Job is crying out for Jesus. We know that Job is crying out for Jesus. Now, this is all what we've gone through so far. This is all in the first cycle of these conversations with his friends. This is the first cycle between Job and his friends. There are two more cycles of this. It goes on and on and on. It's painful and it gets gritty and it is certainly um, suffering. Now, I realize that I don't know where, where you are in your journey with suffering. I don't, I don't know the depth of your suffering. I, I'm not sure about what questions you might be wrestling with this morning, what questions you're facing today. But Job had questions, too. Job is searching for answers, too. But there is no answer 
when Job asks why. There is no answer when he asks why. The question is not why. The question is who. Who can bring us from death to life? Who can restore our relationship with God? Who can be our advocate? Who could be our intercessor? Who could be that friend? Oh, that friend we desperately need in this time of suffering. Who is it? Who is it that can restore our broken hearts? Who? His name. His name is Jesus. The answer Job has been searching for, the answer we have been searching for, is Jesus, the son of suffering, the one who bore our sin and shame. God did not spare his own son, but God gave him up as a ransom for many. On the cross, the justice of a holy God was satisfied, and through the grace of Jesus, our deepest need Restoration with God, our deepest need, is restored. Because of Jesus, we do not grieve or mourn or even suffer like those who have no hope. Because of Jesus, we live in resurrection hope. We live in resurrection life. Check this out. This is the book of Romans chapter 8. Check this out. This is what we live in. If God is for us, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. No, and in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, and I am convinced, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the answer that we've been looking for. The answer our hearts long for. That that is the friend Job desperately needed. That is the advocate, the intercessor, the friend that we have. That we have in Jesus. Listen to what Jesus promises you. Listen to what Jesus promises us. This is John chapter 14. If you love me, you will obey what I command And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, another comforter, another friend to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. This is God's Holy Spirit. This is the gift of God's Holy Spirit for you. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Job Job suffered in isolation, feeling like God was distant, like there was a lid over heaven and his prayers could not get through. He felt isolated, without an advocate, 
and without hope for the future. And his friends, his friends became his tormentors. Job cried out for an intercessor. Job cried out for Jesus. Job, in the very fiber of his being, from this ancient past, Job, from the very fiber of his being, knew he needed Jesus. He knew it. He didn't know the words, but he knew it in his heart. He needed Jesus. And my question is, do we know it? Do you? Do you know your need for Jesus? If you'll accept the grace and mercy of Jesus, God's Holy Spirit lives in you. This is the gift and this is the promise. God is with you. God is for you. Hear me, friends. God is for you. Here's my question for you this week. This is what I'm curious about and what I invite you to be curious about too. God is for you. Can we be for each other? Can we be for one another? Do you have three friends? Are you willing to be a friend? A friend that loves from the center of who you are, that loves out of the power of the Holy Spirit, a friend that shows up. And we're armed with a lot more than casseroles and platitudes, guys. We're, we're, we're armed with a lot more than an untrammeled, embedded theology of retribution that, that simplifies the world in a way that isn't simple enough. We're armed with much more than that. A friend that shows up, and when we show up, we show up in the power of the promise of that Holy Spirit that lives in us, secure and filled with the hope of Jesus, who is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us right now. Can you believe it? Job longed for this, and we have this right now. Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and he intercedes for you, for me. God is for you. Can we be for each other? From the ancient past, Job longed for the hope that we have in Jesus. Let's, let's live in that hope. Let's live out that hope. Let's see that hope realized in the world. Let's see that kingdom come. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's be the kind of friend that we would hope to have. Church, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you. Grateful for the hope that is ours in Jesus. Grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, we come before you. On the other side of the resurrection. God, we come before you and you've already gone before us through the work and power of your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, you sit at the right hand of God and intercede for us. So God, I lift those prayers that we cannot say. The things that are so close to our hearts that hurt so deeply that we can't even put into words. It's stuck deep in there. God, we know through the power of your Spirit, you advocate on our behalf. The Spirit brings those groanings to the throne room of God and Jesus presents them before the Lord. God, you see us and you hear us and you know us and you love us. God, you are with us and you are for us. 
Could we be the kind of friend that we have in Jesus? Spirit, would you be at work in us? Would you give us eyes to see and give us the empathy to engage and love people where they are and be in their presence and not speak for you, but let the Spirit of God speak with us through our actions, through our love, through our presence. God, that we'd be a reflection of the truth that you are with us. And God, as a church, would, be a, would we be a covenant community where we are for each other? God, help us to think this week about where there's opportunity and where there's margin to invest deeply in relationship to be the kind of friend that shows up. God, we thank you that we live in the hope of Jesus and we live with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that this week would be different because we see the world as you see it. And we love people like you do in the simple ways of our everyday life. God, we lift this week to you and we pray that you'd use it and use us, God, for your glory, that the Spirit of God that is gifted to us would overflow and splash in all kinds of people in wonderful ways. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Centerpoint Church Podcast. Be sure to keep up with us on social media at facebook.com slash wearecenterpoint or on Instagram at wearecenterpoint. We hope to see you soon in person for worship this Sunday at 930.